0: This is a Fubar Radio podcast. Go to FubarRadio.com for more details. Screen Talk with Dan Clark on Fubar Radio. Hello and welcome to Screen Talk with me, Dan Clark. Oh, what a show we have for you today, guys. Uh, our guest today is. The uh, wonderful Stephen Merchant Co-creator of The Office Extras, Life's Too Short He's a writer, director, actor And a stand-up Is there anything this man can't do And do successfully uh, He's even been a highly successful podcaster himself uh, With the hugely popular shows That he did with Ricky Gervais And Cole Pilkington Which um, I always thought were fucking hilarious Uh He's someone whose work I've been a fan of for many years and I've actually met him once or twice before and he's always seemed like a really lovely guy, and which he is. Uh, uh, Can can you imagine if a chat show host or like an interviewer or someone uh, introduced someone like, um, uh, I've met this guy uh, over the years, um, and I've always got a bit of a bad vibe from him. But let's hope I don't get that today. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, our next guest. Uh, But we had, Stephen and I had a brilliant uh, conversation. Uh, It was funny and open and warm, and he has uh, a brilliant guilty pleasure Uh, To talk about which um, I hadn't seen And um, I encourage you all to go and watch Uh, But because the interview was so much fun And it overran and we've got to cut it down to fit the slot uh, I'm not going to do a news section or reviews or anything like that But I will kickstart the show with a song This is Carano and the kids with all his love And this is from the film Where the Wild Things Are Screen Talk with Dan Clark On FUBAR Radio so, here we have my uh, very special guest today, uh, Mr. Stephen Merchant. Hello, Stephen. Hello, Dan. How are you doing? I'm all right. Good. My question is, how are you? <laughs> is that the one question you have for this That's whole... That's it? am yeah. I'm, I'm okay, yeah. Uh, we're here in Los Angeles, which... Um, do you still find, even though people know you work here and live here and stuff, when you go home and you say, oh, I've just been in Los Angeles, do people still sort of get a bit like, ooh, Los Angeles?
1: No, in fact, I, I think people assume I live here. Right. Uh, now, cab drivers, well, you live in that Los Angeles, don't you? I mean, how they know what I'm doing, why they're following that, I don't know. But also, I don't, I don't, I think, I feel like I, I'm bi, bi-continental okay. in the sense that I feel like I go back and forth quite regularly yeah. and spend large chunks of time on either side you of the You sleep
0: that. with each continent.
1: Yes, yeah. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, I don't feel like I, li- I don't think I've ever
0: admitted to myself that I live in yeah. LA. I you spend f- a have you ever tweeted time... it? Because that's maybe how taxi drivers know. No, I think, I just
1: LA. I just feel like they they just
0: know. They, they just know where, where everyone is living. They have the knowledge. They course <laughs> they do. They, they experience <laughs> they know everything. I mean, I find that when I come here and I go back home, if I ever say, oh, I've just come back from LA, people are like, ooh, LA. Like, you're showing off. And yeah. the weird thing is, if you actually showed off and said, oh, I've been I've just been to this tropical island, like a privately owned island with just me and some close friends and served by beautiful people. Yeah. And all the money we spent went to an amazing charity. People would just go, "Oh, well, that sounds cool. Right, right, right. But LA. Something about LA in particular. You're all up yourself. But
1: I remember when I first moved to London from Bristol... I would go back and there'd be people in Bristol saying, oh, London, here he is, Mr. Fancy. What do you want to go that London for? We've got everything here. What have we got in London? We ain't got, we got bowling. You want bowling? Yeah. We've got bowling alley. We've got all things. Yeah. So there, we're still, I think, we're, wherever you go. I mean, you know, the, at the risk of beginning this conversation, sort of sounding like I'm bad-mouthing England, which I'm not at all in, which is one of the reasons I have to go back as regularly as I can yeah. to get a nice fill <laughs> yeah. of England and to kind of escape the... The la la land of Hollywood. Yeah. Um. But there is there is a part of England, and there's a part. There's a certain British mentality that infects some people, which is that kind of. Um. It, I don't know if it's jealousy. Is it? It's, it's. It's. It's hard. It's hard for people to celebrate your whether it's okay. success or whether yeah. it's just travel or whether or it's trying. new
0: experiences. Yeah. Right. Or even just trying. People right. are a bit like. Oh, right. Trying. Are yeah. oh, you? Yeah. yeah. Exactly. <laughs>
1: yeah. I always think people have said like, "What's the difference between?" American and England in their outlooks and I always think in America if you sort of if you're a kid and you say I want to be president one day people are like yeah go for it yeah shoot for the stars (laughs) and in England if you went I want to
0: be prime minister they'd be like
1: oh he wants to be prime minister (laughs) good luck with that mate
0: yeah well look where that's that look where that's got the current um hopefuls for the presidency sure. you know well there you are that's it i that's... mean no this is the one thing no one seems to be mentioning about trump is not about his policies or his outlook or anything but just that some guy that's never been a politician is allowed to run yeah for the most important job in the world right Like, how is that well i suppose you just need the money here that's that's all it all i it guess takes. that's
1: it he's a success right he's yeah. a success in 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 business and it. so that's that's all you need
0: that's amazing. Well, this isn't a political show, so we won't go in there. If it had been Ronald Reagan, then we could have discussed his <laughs> right, lengthy film right, career right. prior to uh, being a politician. Um, yeah, do you find, because you're, you're working here a bit more, do you find it different to working back home? Um, do they both have, obviously, pluses and minuses? And-
1: yes. I mean, there's one of the things that's appealing about Los Angeles is that it, it, it does often feel like a, a company town, mm. in that everyone is involved with the film and tv business or is aspiring to or is used to you know i mean it's and therefore
0: um people aren't ashamed as well to be to be saying that they're trying to do it no one's no one's ashamed of the ambition of that and it just
1: i think therefore it just means that sort of opportunity you know does lie around every corner and that you do run into people and they do say i'm working on this do you want to be involved with this and that it's not once you're here the idea that you could have a meeting with Tom Hanks mm-hmm. is not crazy mm-hmm. in the way that when I was growing up in Bristol, that just that would have just seemed absurd. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, what universe do you oh, think yeah. you live in that you could
0: have a meeting with with uh, Ron Howard? I would love it though if you, as a uh, sort of sixteen-year-old, had tried to blag that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right, school. So right, oh, I've right. got a meeting with Tom Hanks this <laughs> afternoon. Uh... <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um yeah I I think uh on the way here I was uh, I got decided to get an Uber to your house and um uh, first of all the the woman in the um the driver it was a female driver a very very beautiful female driver which sure. is not something you tend to get in London right. or the UK um sexist No I just mean as it doesn't <laughs> seem to be it, <laughs> I I can imagine that you could uh, pull that comment apart and find some sort of misogyny in there. But I'm just saying, from experience, it doesn't seem to be something that uh, many women want to do as a job. Right. Probably... Down to safety, but also um, like sort of glamorous women as well. No, you right, know, sure, this sure. She was a woman sure. that was wearing kind of very glamorous clothing. And she said to me, What do you do? And I never liked saying the performing part of what I do because no. that comes with what have I seen you in? Or yeah. if you say stand up comedy, it's like, Tell us oh, a joke. All that stuff. So I said, Oh, I'm a writer. And she was like, Oh, great. What kind of uh, writing? I said, Oh, TV comedy. And she said, Comedy's funny. Wow. <laughs> I was like, That's mm-hmm. a very LA comment. Yeah. I, I feel. Was like, wow. And then a bit later on, she said, You know, I feel like I should watch more comedy, you know, because I don't laugh enough. And I'm like, Wow. So the only time you'll ever laugh is when you're watching something with, Je- like, you couldn't yeah. laugh in normal life. Never laugh. Never yeah. laugh unless you're like, provoked uh, by a <laughs> well scripted <laughs> yeah. TV show that's got 12 people. writing jokes Uh, yeah it's weird so yeah the 12 people thing you you've worked you had your own show on hbo a couple of years ago did you have a team of people small team yeah small team smaller than your usual uh small team
1: in the sense that it was maybe uh, five or six people as opposed to 12 whatever you might find on a big network show but uh great working with a team like that yeah really exciting and you just feel like you're in a room with very smart people and you you throw up an idea and it kind of um uh you know pinballs around the room and and develops and or, or like a snowball a lot of ball metaphors here mm. like it snowballs you know and it kind of builds and it gets and uh that that i really found
0: exciting and was i it, was it weird at first though having written either solely or with ricky before right to suddenly like sort of like throw an idea that like it's your show and someone might go i'm not sure about that steve what about this and or you you... know what it's like as a writer i think you that's the process
1: i i I, there's no ego for me when i'm writing like it doesn't i don't feel defensive about ideas uh, or kind of embarrassed if someone doesn't like it or i never it's not a question of sort of pulling rank Mm -hmm. you know so i i like that that's exciting to me the the kind of the um the 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 dialectic, if you will, okay. <laughs> of the writing room—you know, all these different views kind of clashing together. I think what is important is that you uh, remain very sort of um, firm in your in what the tone of the show is going to be, because otherwise it can get it can start to get um, disparate, like all these different ideas, and and yeah. it's and, and it's quite easy to spend hours just discussing things and never nailing anything down. So
0: your your job is to be more like just keeping making sure the vision is coming. You I'm know. very much the Donald Trump of the equation, okay.
1: you know. Okay, um, wow. I've had some success. <laughs> yeah. I'm calling the shots. I'm shooting from the hip. Uh, you have a no Mexican policy I have a on your a staff no Mexican policy. On your writing I've built a large wall. <laughs> Everything is tremendous. It's going to be a tremendous show. We're <laughs> full of tremendous talent.
0: You're going to make HBO great again. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And
1: yeah. Um, and so I'm the sort of, you know, I'm the I'm the ringleader but you know i'm surrounded i'm sure as trump is by the best brains in
0: the business (laughs) i love that this interview is now going to be a comparison between trump's career and yours Sure, (laughs) yeah you need to get yourself a really tall building in new york do you find that um you know versus back home which is you know you you had a show which was incredibly british your Mm -hmm. first big hit and you've had many but the first one and there aren't actually many um, people, especially then. Maybe more since then. But you guys were kind of the first that had a show that th- was successful in the U- U.S. and got a a uh, adapted version right. that was successful. Right. It must. You must have at one point thought that ah, this can't get any better, can it? How have, we uh, <laughs> How have we
1: done this? Well, I think it. I think it was. Uh, again, I looking back every uh, ambition that we had was very was very small in its in its scope, so like just the next step exactly kind of so thing. it it wasn't sort of a larger game plan, yeah it was just sort of well, let's do this pilot of this show set in an office, and let's do let try and make that good and then and let's make it kind of specific and let's make it based on our own observations and experiences and let's try and make it for people like us who will think this is funny or accurate, yeah and not and no sense that it would necessarily be popular even in England, except maybe to a small cult audience, you know? And then, so that we tried that, and then that became inexplicably popular with a bigger audience. And then suddenly we find out that it's sort of, it's being passed around as a DVD, you know, in Hollywood, and that Samuel L. Jackson is watching it. Like, when is he watching? When is he sort of
0: tearing the cellophane off of a DVD case (laughs) and putting it in? I just... How did you know about this? Because this would have been pre-social media. But I
1: think what happened was... Ricky obviously became pretty famous, and so would suddenly find himself at events or at okay. junkets or making a film, and and he'd meet these people, and they would say, "Oh, I love your show," and then you'd find out yeah. that they'd seen it, and so and then the America they said, would you, "We'll make an American version," and the one thing that I I felt I contributed to that was that having been something of a fan and. It, of of the sort of folklore of movies and TV, I knew that there had been very, a lot of very unsuccessful attempts to remake mm. British shows. And that it seemed to me that one of the flaws was when the original creators were too heavily involved in the American remake. Okay. And so they were just trying to re- replicate what they'd already done. And it seemed to me that the safer bet was to just let American, talented American people, just do it and not not to meddle too much mm-hmm. and let them do their own thing and ultimately that paid off and so i think that was our one contribution really was to sort of be hands-off and just offer what advice we could yeah you know, when, it, when it was needed
0: and it seems to well it worked it <laughs> worked but again hey, i remember i
1: remember literally having conversations with ricky where we were saying it, the chances of this american show succeeding it's like winning the olympics there are so many times beforehand where you might trip and break your ankle (laughs) before you even get to the starting line and then the idea that you win the gold just crazy so i I just think our limit our expectations were always kind of minimized and therefore every degree that we went further it was like this is insane yeah
0: and i like the fact that the british version was a very uh authored like altered piece and the american is the sort of the the TV system that they did right. and that they both work you know right. and they both right. kind of have a slightly different vibe because of that um, But you
1: also see when you when you work in both camps you see the the grass is always greener because I speak to so many American writers who sort of are envious of the fact that British TV, they do a couple of series and then they end. And then British people envious of the fact that American shows have bigger budgets
0: and can run and run. So, you know, everyone's always jealous of What Americans mean is we'd love to do it your way, but earn the same money we get. (laughs) Right, exactly, exactly. I don't know. Did, Did you find having a hit so early on in your career, did you find that a pressure at all? Like you know, um, even though it was a it was a hit in the best sense of the word that it it was a natural you know kind of a word of mouth thing that turned into a huge commercial hit. Right. It wasn't like you know here's the king keys to the kingdom and you hadn't you know you hadn't earned it or anything. But it's still like the pressure of okay we've just made. I think
1: of, we were probably aware of that. Although I think I, again I remember having conversations with Ricky again. J- j- just my, my opinion was often formed, particularly then, based on, as I say, being something of a historian of other people's careers, mm-hmm. and just knowing that it's almost impossible to top the success of something, particularly if it has had a an impact in the way that that show did. And that, therefore, you are safer to kind of try and do things sort of parallel to it, you know, or, yeah, yeah. or just go down different roads and not try and constantly...
0: Not chase the buzz. Right, it, right, where? exactly.
1: Yeah. And I just think that way... Uh, madness lies you know because there's a, there comes a point at which and i often think this when they see giant movie stars you know it's like the does tom cruise feel that pressure to sort of constantly yeah. make a film that's more successful or more impactful or more zeitgeisty than top gun was or mission impossible or whatever and and i guess i love it,
0: that you picked those two films <laughs> of all the, right but all i the suppose bit.
1: they're sort of markers aren't they in his in career of, yeah, in yeah it, how in a way. hugely successful right, they were right. and
0: I think he does. Like,
1: well, I'm assuming he yeah. does, but it, clearly he's very good at that. Yeah. But I suppose for me that like, the people that I look at whose careers I admire and their work, whether it's Billy Wilder or Woody Allen and people, they, they, you know, they're people that had as many hits as misses in a way mm-hmm. because they just kept trying to do stuff that was interesting to them. And perhaps it's the difference between approaching it as a writer and approaching it as a movie star, right? Yeah. You know, I like think an actor has a different criteria perhaps than a You've got a your like,
0: um, currency you know, right. always worried about... Who's if, snapping at your heels yeah. if you're a film star, right? Yeah, and also, like, if your last film was not as much of a hit, will you get your right. get more offers? And maybe in the world of directors, certainly um, kind of the Woody Allens or the, the sort of uh, more independent filmmakers, you're not as worried about that. I mean, it's, it's interesting. I was thinking about Woody Allen recently because I had a conversation with a friend who's has this real fear of... I mean, we all do, but this person is... Such a crippling fear of failure. Yeah. In case they, um, they somehow put a smudge on their canon of work. Right. And you think there's actually quite a few people that we still think of as geniuses who have made quite a lot of duds. Sure. Um, I mean Woody Allen, he he sort of at the moment it's like a one in three or something. Right. You know it's um, and again I don't like. Bad mouthing But given but he's- that he's made a
1: film a year since about oh, 1969, I mean, you know, it's you're amazing. bound to have a couple of flaws in there. And I, I always make, I mean, one of the things which distresses me often is, and I mean, I, and I use distress as a deliberate term because I'll read a sort of Martin Scorsese's lost it op ed, you know, in some kind of broadsheet. Yeah. Like, how dare you sir yeah yeah. like what does this man have to do that he can't get a break (laughs) that he's lost like he's 70 something and he's and i thought the wolf of wall street was just one of the most kinetic exciting energized funny films i'd seen in an age someone
0: compared it to like a sort of punk film yeah just a thrill and you
1: see these other people with you know who are half his age who are making films less dynamic and exciting and and i just think You know, good luck, long may he reign, you know, and I just, the idea, I think it's that thing, again, that I think a lot of people who look at the business from the outside, and I'm trying to sound here like an old sage, (laughs) but I think you, I think, and I remember thinking this as a, you know, again, as a fan and as a teenager is, you assume that there's a sort of game plan to every decision Mm-hmm. That someone you admire does. That somehow everything's a calculated move about what's the next step, what's the next revolutionary piece of work I'm going to do. This was all part and of my master this plan. This is all part of my master plan. And that actually, however successful you are, aside from perhaps the Tom Cruises, you sort of you're going a little bit where the wind blows you. Yes. You know, you're um people will look at some of the you know the acting things i do and and think like why did he do that and it's like i did it because it was fun yeah because someone said come and do this thing and i thought that'll be fun and that you know selfishly i'm sort of not
0: doing it for your amusement (laughs) i'm doing it for mine you know and i think more seriously out of order steve right these people they've grown to trust you i know know? (laughs)
1: but certainly the projects that i that i try and write and direct i'm a bit more well also um, judicious takes... about but but in terms of acting it's like
0: yeah you know. it's a sabbatical isn't it it is it's you know, a, it's a day off from and... your real worries well you know uh, i always remember um in probably the mid to late 90s uh nicholas cage someone asked him why do you make crap films now or something and he was like do you know what i did a decade or 15 years of indie films of films where i'm crying or freaking right. out i just wanted to have some fun sure yeah, you know, and you kind of think, well, yeah, like if when you are about to go onto a shoot for three months, you, some actors must think, well, do I want to cry for the next three months, yeah. or just kind of dick about? Well, people, fans are obsessed with legacy.
1: Yeah, you know, they're they're just you know. Oh, Robert De Niro, why isn't he making Taxi Driver? Because he made it <laughs> yeah. when he was 30 and he cared and he had energy and he could give up whole swathes of his life to put on weight and lose weight. And, and now he's like an old man with, with you know, uh, an art collection and and, yeah. and, and a wants film to festival do, to yeah he's just and, he's got other things yeah. to do it's like give the guy a break yeah you can still go go and watch Taxi Driver it still exists it's I, still I, there
0: I do love the idea of someone when like if Martin Scorsese makes a not great film like I knew he was a fraud right all those that 20 other films that was just luck but also again uh, you know um,
1: and you see it so much on, on I mean I think Twitter and Instagram makes you very aware of uh of how quick people are to judge and you will make a I got I I'll make a kind of casual tweet that I'm li- that I li- literally occurred to me walking from the, the 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 kitchen to the lavatory and then while sat on the lavatory I'll, I'll make what I think is a, a, a an amusing thought that occurred to me then and there'll be some people that will lol it and there'll be many others that will be like that's supposed to be funny <laughs> yeah and, so, and it's sort of, it's a thought I had as I walk from one room to the next it's not yeah don't don't worry about it just let it go and people are so you know no one's trying to make a bad film or a bad tv show everyone's trying to do their best it's just really hard to do it well it's incredibly well, and also hard
0: it, with comedy i mean was, i've spoken to, to people about this on this show before it's just the the anger that people have when yeah. they think something isn't funny right and right. i wonder where that comes from i think personally it's because fundamentally, I think every person thinks they know what funny is. Right. And that's why when something isn't making them laugh because they think they know what funny is, they get angry about it. Right, Rather right. than going, oh, someone in the flat next door might be laughing at this. Which yes. like, how the fuck, have they got the audacity to make this? Like, you know, my taxpayer's money. Or, <laughs> sure, right. They get so... Well, I think it's
1: also that you, you're very aware of how to judge comedy, right? Like, if you're not physically laughing if the film that you're watching is not actually having a physiological impact yeah. on you as you watch it you're feeling shortchanged. changed whereas watching a drama you're more inclined to kind of wait till the end yeah. to decide if it kind of moved yeah. you or you felt something you know what I mean that you yeah, sort of take like, that more as a holistic
0: thing whereas comedy you kind of want to laugh second by second right yeah it's like drinking alcohol and you're not getting drunk right like, what's going well, on what's wrong with my- this <laughs> yeah.
1: What is wrong with this cocaine? I am not getting a bus. <laughs> it's
0: because you've taken too
1: much. I'm going to write an angry tweet to my
0: dealer. <laughs> uh, I, I I did read somewhere um, recently there there are people who sell drugs online that so they right. someone in, invented an app so that you can't trace where it's coming from and you can order. A dealer to go to that person's house. I'm not condoning. Is this something this that by you're having, are you, <laughs> yeah. Is this? Are you, is I'm there going to be a kind of spoken word yeah. sponsor? Where you, yeah, or yeah, you're going to interrupt this and sponsored by yeah, yeah. <laughs> cocaine to your door. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, was there something when you were younger? So you're a young Bristolian. Is it? Uh-huh. You, you're from Br- Bristol. Um, was there something that you watched that made that definitely made you go, "Oh, I want to do that"?
1: Or uh, I think I was a fan for years, and I used to watch all those old black-and-white comedies with my dad and I Love Lucy and those sort of shows and then I think what what started to turn it around for me was uh, John Cleese okay. becoming a fan of John Cleese through Faulty Towers of Monty Python and then discovering that John Cleese had grown up in Western Supermare not far from Bristol and had, and had been a student in Bristol uh, uh, went to a, a Bristol school and then had gone off to the Cambridge Footlights, and I and I just for some reason I remember thinking, oh he's he was born near here, he's he's tall, and that sort of somehow he's, he's me, well exactly oh, yeah. exactly, and I just thought, oh oh he did it, and it still seemed like a kind of crazy idea to me, but for some reason I just felt like what he did, I might be able to do. Not that I thought I was as brilliant as him, but that. I don't possible. know he just he just seemed accessible yeah. you know in a way that almost no one else did that's and interesting because that, also he's from the kind of Oxbridge class as well right so. but then for a long time I, I, I would tell my teachers that I wanted to go to Cambridge University and to be in the footlights because I thought that was the career path yeah. and then my teachers at my school my comprehensive would say you're never going to get into Cambridge you won't get the grades and so I oh. never tried applying for Cambridge and then I got the grades that would have been enough really? had I applied And and I always felt a bit angered by the fact that again it was that it was that sort of dare i say it that british naysaying attitude of like it doesn't happen to the likes of you yeah you know the the again i do think that probably if i was american they'd have said sure shoot for the stars you know yeah. there might have been a little bit more of that you just
0: need five hundred thousand pounds to get it. <laughs> exactly, yeah. exactly. But um, do you, do you, there's a possibility though that had you done that that maybe your life would have well been, i think in retrospect
1: you know, it it worked out okay because i like
0: you say i think <laughs> there's a well no what i meant
1: was i think that it it would have made me perhaps into a sort of Oxbridgey comedian and i don't think really that's my bag like i because i am basically a working class oik in many ways with pretensions yeah. and i think probably i'd have gone to cambridge and been a bit overwhelmed by the by how smart everyone was and and that i thought i was clever in my school but that actually i i wasn't and that and I think I probably would have been a bit overwhelmed and a bit intimidated, and maybe I'd have been. Tr- I just think it maybe it would have taken me longer to kind of tap into what what I could do yeah. and what I was, what made me funny.
0: Yeah, and also you, you all your stuff, including right up to your most recent stuff, is much more uh, low status, right, and kind of bef- a bit more of the buffoon, right, right. Um, and you know, a lot of the I, I don't mean to group them all together, but a lot of the Cambridge oxford type is a much more smarter you know it's, yes
1: it's, it's like there's a lot i feel like there's a lot of wordplay and yeah. a lot of kind of um as you say a sarcasm and satire and sort of seeing it from as you say a kind of high status yeah. looking down on on people's foibles rather than um to me kind of feeling like i'm one of the idiots
0: yeah yeah um so it was definitely comedy you wanted to do from always
1: from a well very early on it was always comedy and then i started seeing woody allen films Right. And then I was like, "Oh, you can do comedy and you can do serious stuff at the same time." Yeah. yeah, and then that blew my brains out. You know, the idea that you could have both in one piece of work. What
0: was what was the Woody Allen film that the one got that, you in?
1: The one that amused me. The like the one the first one I saw was Love and Death, what? and it was on late okay. late at night, and it was this kind of you know this sort of spoof of you know a Dostoevsky style uh, earnest European film. And then, um,
0: then and I started. Would you say that was still in his? Uh, the, the, what they? Oh, That's his the early, funny. early funny films. Yeah. yeah.
1: But then, and I was just I saw this like dweeby little guy kind of being hilarious, and I, again, it was a jaw breaking, jaw dropping moment to me. Like I don't. What is this? Yeah. I don't understand. Like what? Who is this? He's wearing glasses from the seventies, <laughs> but it's supposed to be in the eighteen seventies. Like I, <laughs> what? And.
0: And, and because, you're like, it's me again, right? But, I'm both John Cleese and Woody yeah, yeah, Allen. Yeah, exactly.
1: Well, that was it. I suddenly felt like I understood. Oh, he's kind of awkward, and he's nerdy, and he's kind of got these hang-ups, but smart, but as smart well. and funny. And I that obviously as a teenager, awkward teenager, I, that um, I related to that. And also because he was very influenced by Bob Hope, who'd been my childhood yeah. hero, and so I could see these influences from that. And and then I would start seeing things like Annie Hall in Manhattan, where he was. There were jokes, but they were serious, and I was like what? It just, and that that just opened things up to me. Then that yeah. was like hearing kind of it's indie funny. music for the first time yeah. after you'd been on a diet of pop music. What you age know? were you? That was early teens, probably. Really, thirteen or That's fourteen. That's really or early to
0: get into Woody Allen. I was very similar in that I grew up comedy-wise with like Rick and Aid and the young yeah. ones, and just big in-your-face comedy. And then a bit more surreal in my mid-teens. It wasn't. I was like 20 when I first discovered Woody right, right. Allen. And it was actually through one of his non-starring. It was in Bullets Over Broadway, which just came out. And I was a big John Cusack fan. And he was having this new, uh, having been in teen flicks, it was now in all these yes. cool indies in the 90s. And I went to see it, not kind of really knowing it was a woody allen film and i loved it so much yes i was like oh maybe i should see his other stuff yes and then the great thing about that was there was at the time like 20 something films to go you know this back catalog it's like wow yeah all these things and and it was pre-dvd so you really had to hunt the vhs's absolutely but that that i was much later with that i'm surprised that uh yeah early teens because i
1: remember um I went from seeing those early movies to see to buying his stand-up tapes mm-hmm. and and his and i his stand-up comedy that just blew me away as well i mean just i i was just down and so he and and again like with cleese thinking i had to do footlights when i became a woody allen fan it was like oh well he did stand up so i should probably do stand up because mm-hmm. that's the sort of way that you pay your dues Not realising, of course, that as soon as Willie Allen no longer had to do stand-up, he turned his (laughs) back on it immediately, you know. And um, so that's why I started traipsing around doing stand-up, was sort of um, feeling like that was something you had
0: to do to kind of earn earn your stripes. I actually saw you do stand-up years and years. You you, you did something, and maybe I'm misremembering this, you did... Do you remember that show, The Stand-Up Show, that was on the BBC Mm. later... Before stand-up became... As mainstream as it is in the UK again. Yes, it was this little show filmed in front of like thirty people. Yes, that Barry Cryer or something. I think that's right. Yeah, and I remember seeing. Um, I was doing a. I was in a sketch group at the time, and I was just a kid, just a little kid, and um, I remember seeing you. And it wasn't until years later that I suddenly that was that guy. I'm sure it was that guy that did You saw me on TV or no, you were no, in it the was audience? Rec- it was a recording. Yeah, because you see,
1: I, that I the reason I was on was because my friend was a producer. Right. And she said, Do you want to do your act just so because we'll have the camera crews and they'll we'll film it and you can have it as a showreel. But it was never intended to be yeah. broadcast. So it was never shown. I just had it as a as a showreel thing. So think... you you literally, unless you were in that audience, you'd never ah, right, have seen that's
0: it. That's interesting, because I think we we were the only sketch. Act that they ever put on there, and it didn't. It was kind of a weird uh, mix that I'm not entirely sure worked. But then, you did you not do stand up for ages after you first started doing it? Uh, did- uh,
1: no, I no, I carried on. When you saw me there was one of the very early on, and then I and then I carried on doing it uh, infrequently. And then once The Office happened, that's when I stopped doing it because I was just like, this is so much hard work. And, you know... And, 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 and if Woody and Allen didn't need to do yeah, it. Yeah, and as soon as he stopped, he stopped. And then, so that I took a long time away from it. And then only more recently in the last handful of years did I go back to it. Mm. Uh, and again, I, I, I do think what I've realized is when that doing it definitely sharpens you as a writer. I mean, I think you it reminds you... How to connect to an audience? It reminds you um, what makes an audience laugh, what doesn't. How audiences are both smart and stupid at the same time. <laughs> by which I mean that they they're informed and they're clever and they move quickly, but you still need to lead them by the hand through a sort of through certain yeah. jokes or setting up the premise of jokes. You know, there's a sort of technical side to it that you need to be reminded of. I think when yeah, you're sat in a room cool. on your own, you can kind of forget some of that.
0: I think when you've done stand-up for a while, you your uh, courage of convictions in a joke is stronger. Because yes, you're like yes. I know this is the sort of thing that if I did it in front of a room of people, it yeah. would work. Yeah, that yeah. You do lose that you don't. Do you enjoy stand-up? You haven't done a tour um, for a while. Hmm. That's do a, I enjoy stand-up? That's a no, isn't
1: it? <laughs> no, I, well, I, I, no, I do enjoy it. I, I, but again, what's odd is I enjoy the... um. The mechanics of it. I really enjoy figuring it out. I find it very hard work and quite stressful. But yeah. I really like you have an idea and then you really try and work it and you and you work on it and you work on it and eventually it works and the audience laughs. That I find really interesting. The idea that I then have to do that for another 200 times. Yeah, yeah. That's less appealing to me. I don't have that that urge to be on stage and to get the buzz of the audience and to sort of, you know what I mean. I don't I don't feed off that. Yeah. I I feed off the. I guess the kind of the mechanics of how, how of how it all works which is I think probably why I enjoy writing ultimately more than I do performing and that I perform because it's because it's a day off I guess mm-hmm. um, from all the other hard work
0: did you when you did the office did you well how come you're not you were not a regular character in there and did you slightly regret not making yourself a... um again I think that's that
1: thing when you look from the outside back at it you think well he must have been desperate to be in it but again i think just from the way that it originated uh it just never it, was, it just never occurred to me like we 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 were writing it we were directing it we were so densely involved with the producing and the editing that there was more than enough to do you know like it just there it was so exciting and so and so all consuming that i never for one moment was think, thinking oh i must when do i get to be in it you know it yeah. just never it never occurred to me. And if there was a bit that I could do that was useful, then I then I showed up. But, you know, I wasn't... You, sh- you showed up. You were there Yeah, but I, but I was already there. I and mean, <laughs> that's why I was in extras was really because Ricky and I would be in the room writing and we would have this natural rapport that we developed, you know, over the years. And... And I was, I think, a, p- a pretty funny performer. And it was just like, well, I'm, I'm a resource. I'm going to be on the set. Yeah. We may as well stick me in it rather than casting the role. But, you know, it was driven less from ego and the desperation. More from human resources. Yeah, just kind of, <laughs> I, I'm an asset. Like, why not
0: Why not use it? Do you, uh, this is a weird question that people don't often like to answer, honestly. But do you like being famous? Did Was was that any, that wasn't part of why you were in the second series? Because I always get the impression when I see Ricky, and this isn't uh in any way, shape or form, a uh, uh, you know, a criticism. But I get the impression he fucking loves being famous. Like <laughs> you know, it just all the like when you see him do the Golden Globes or whatever, he just loves like, you know, being up there, making those jokes, right. you know, rubbing shoulders with these people, um in a g in a really good way, in a sort of way. Well I think he way. has a performer's um
1: uh instinct, you know, he j- you know he even before he was famous, he was the sort of funniest bloke in the pub, Mm. you know, and he, I don't, I don't mean that he was a show off. I just mean that he, he's just, he, he's, he naturally draws people's attention. He naturally draws the eye. He's just funny and smart and charismatic. And I think, you know, once he starts performing, it just, it's just part of his makeup, you know, in a way that I don't think I have in quite the same way. I, I think I'm, I think I'm quite an accomplished performer, but I don't, again, I don't, I don't need it in my DNA. But in terms of whether I like being famous, I I think I like the perks of it. You know, I think that's someone said to me years ago, an interviewer, in one of those kind of ways that The Guardian or some other broadsheet will try and psychoanalyse you when they interview you. Or you you read the article afterwards and they've made assessment like, I noticed he looked away when I s when I asked him this question, which tells you know, they kind of called <laughs> psychology. And this woman said to me, do you think that you went into comedy because it was a way of controlling when people laugh at you?
0: Wow. And, and it's a loaded question. It was a
1: loaded question. And I think there probably is some truth in that. And I think probably growing up, I did feel awkward and and, and gangly and kind of out of place and that humour was a way of, not that I was bullied, but this, it was a way of, of controlling my yeah. domain, if you like. And... So consequently, I think fame is like an extension of that, yeah. you know, it's sort of, it, it's that weird, freakishly tall, googly eyed guy. Oh, from the telly, yeah. you know, and there's something about you somehow you're legitimized in your, <laughs> in your oddness, you know? Yeah. Whereas if you weren't on the telly. I'd just be the freaky yeah. boy from down the lane. Yeah. <laughs> the, the the local kids would
0: like run and laugh at and throw rocks I just at. love the way that that journalist worded it. It sounded so kind of sort of passive aggressive you know rather than just sort of saying did you want to be funny to like get people's you know win people's affections or anything Had this weird sort of (laughs) like i bet your life was shit until you were funny or do you know what i mean it's um i mean i think it's pretty you know accepted that most comedians do it for that that reason regardless of what you look like there aren't many really beautiful handsome comics
1: i'm very suspicious of vanity in comedy you know like comedians that are very good looking or or take a great deal of pride in the way they yeah
0: except for eddie murphy who somehow managed how he managed to do that
1: with the leather jumpsuit and the gloves and everything and still be hilarious was weird
0: and like 21 or whatever i don't know he's extraordinary why can't he like i want him to do really interesting films he doesn't care he He wants it's about it's about just i mean he said it himself
1: in the inside the actor studio he says it's about money i do you know i they they asked me to be in dream girls and the the money wasn't good enough (laughs) and then some eventually someone persuaded him but i think he just you know and again
0: it's like it's it's his choice he doesn't owe you anything he doesn't and and i nothing but respect you know do do what you want but for me for my like personal um Enjoyment. I just know that he's got either a another really brilliant um, like when I saw Bowfinger. There's there was a performance where he went, "Wow, you're like an amazing character actor." He's a great character actor. And but there's also if, whenever I watch 48 Hours, which turns up on ITV4 at yeah. like three in the morning, and that scene where he goes into the racist, this sort of mm. the you know redneck bar. And you think this guy was about twenty or twenty-one then? He's a really good dramatic actor he's, as well. But he's a
1: good dramatic act and what he is is he's just exciting. Yeah. Like you watch Beverly Hills Cop and you watch 48 Hours, and even now he's just exciting. Like there's an yeah. energy to him. There's a there's a kind of electricity that's really thrilling. Yeah. And I think, but again, I think it's that we we assume perhaps that you know if we had his talent we'd want to be exercising in all kinds of interesting ways and i guess maybe he just likes sitting at home watching movies or (laughs) playing on his squash court or whatever he has and everything else just to pay the bills like you know what i mean he just maybe has a he just has a different yeah.
0: pleasure from life than we want him to. And he started so young that probably like He's know, probably I've done exhausted. It. I've done it. <laughs> yeah. Not everyone can be Daniel Day-Lewis. Right. Can they and do right. like sick, you know, film years every of, six of preparation, years. <laughs> yeah. Um well look, let's um uh before we talk about our your guilty pleasure. As you know, we get our guests to pick uh songs or a piece of score from uh films. Um Stephen, your choice. Uh do you have a song or a piece of score? It's
1: a piece of score and it's like I said earlier, I have pretensions, and that once I uh, got into my teens, uh, my my sort of love of cinema kind of deepened and enriched. And by the time I went to university, I kind of studied film as an academic subject, and so therefore I've, I I like to think of myself as a as a cineast, if yeah. you will. Mm-hmm, yeah. um, and so therefore I I. Um, Often when people ask me about my like, favorite films or pieces of music, it sounds like I'm being pretentious because yeah. they don't assume that the guy who kind of will goof around on TV would necessarily, like, that I must be trying to be...
0: That you picked something h- from French New Yeah, wave right, exactly. Like that I'm, I,
1: oh, I'm just trying to sound clever. Yeah. Yeah. Although they had never had music in their <laughs> films. But, but the, le- legitimately, I, there is a part of me that's kind of this this pretentious yeah. wanker. And so...
0: We encourage pretentious wanking on this. Yeah, there you are. And
1: so when uh, you asked me about that, I thought the piece of music that immediately came to mind is this piece of music that runs throughout the uh, Wong Kar Wai film, In the Mood for Love, Mm. which I think is just a masterpiece of, dare you say it, world cinema. (laughs) Why, for some reason, anything that's not American or English is considered world cinema, I don't know. I love world cinema. but, um, But anyway, it's... The film itself is majestic, and it and it and I don't know if you've seen it, but it just has. It's about this this couple who um, uh, are both married, and it's set in the '60s, and they kind of have this this unconsummated sort of love affair. It's just beautifully shot. I think it took Wong Kar Wai like two years or something, and he's kind of, you know, he's impossibly meticulous. The costumes, the, what, the set design, the whole
0: time for two years,
1: pretty much, wow. because a lot of the people that work with him kind of can't. Bear to work with it again, like because just because it's so time-consuming. So there's you a know? changeover of uh, crew every <laughs> right, right, right. four months. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but anyway, it's just a majestic piece of work. But it has this piece of music, and I and I've had to make a note of it because obviously it has a lot of um, uh, what I call world names. <laughs> uh, so it's world. it's it's Yumeji's theme, okay. which apparently was originally from the soundtrack of another film called Yumeji, but it's by Shigeru. Umibiashi, I believe that's how you pronounce
0: it. Okay. And
1: what I love about it is it's if you've seen the film, it is it is this kind of motif that runs throughout. And it's so it's so uh kind of it's romantic and it's sort of haunting and it's and it's uh melancholy, but there's a kind of there's a sort of optimism to it. Like it's just it's just a really Beautiful piece of music that, when you see the film, uh, just works in in tandem with the images like perfectly. You know, it's just a great fusion of the pictures and the and the piece of music, and and it's often accompanies the 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 sort of lovers you know crossing in the street, or and it's just I don't know. It just it's it's when you ask me about a piece of music, it's just the piece that
0: immediately pops into my mind. Could you introduce this because I'm just worried I'm going to say say it. Uh, you know, I can't do world talk. I'll just
1: call it, I'll just say it's Yumeji's theme from In the Mood for Love.
0: Screen talk with Dan Clark on Fubar Radio. There you go. Uh, beautiful piece of music. Um, I love the way you introed that as though you were on Capital or Gold, but with the kind of music you would never hear, <laughs> You'd never right hear on, on any of those radio stations, yeah. Last segment of the show, we always get our guests to pick a guilty pleasure, a film that is either just downright shit, but for some reason they love, or they think is an underrated classic. What, what have you got, Steve? I'm not quite sure this one slots into either of those camps exactly.
1: I, I'm not one of those people that really subscribes to the idea of kind of it's so bad, it's good. Because on the whole, like, really bad films are just bad. And that I feel like there's so
0: many great films that why am I rewatching a shit film? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, but, and, but there are, and there are certain occasions. I've never, I agree with you. I've never seen a film that's, uh, you know, those sort of B movies from the 70s and 80s, maybe, right. but I still wouldn't sit through the whole thing. You wouldn't sit the whole thing, right? You'd, you'd see a, a clip of it and it would yeah. make you laugh but yeah. but anyway this is a film
1: which and I'd be sort of interested I don't know if you correspond with your listeners but I'd be interested to know if anyone has watched this lately and or maybe they watch it after our conversation and, and tell me whether it stands up in any way because my memory of it I haven't seen it for a long time but I at the time I remember watching it kind of at least three or four times in the course of a year or so just being really amused and charmed by it it was a film from about 1998 and the reason I speak of it a bit vaguely is because, like I say, I haven't seen it yeah. since around that time. But at the time, it really, really uh, stuck with me. Is it, it was starring Mark Wahlberg, okay. and it was produced by John Woo and Wesley Snipes,
0: <laughs> and it's called The Big Hit. Do you know? I don't even know. You've this, not even heard of no. No.
1: it, and a lot of people haven't. And it's a. It was directed by a, a Hong Kong action director whose name I'm afraid it escapes me and who's he like a protege of john i think he's a protege of Wu. <laughs> and it's uh it's Wahlberg as a sort of lovable professional assassin and it has a lot of the um hyper kinetic shooting and editing style that you'd associate with john woo and the hong kong and the,
0: the kind of following a bullet following the bullets thing. like that yeah but
1: it's probably done it's probably relatively low budget so but it's well made as in my memory very of its time but, and it's, and Wahlberg is a professional assassin. He has a, a mistress who's a kind of, who's a headache. And then he's also engaged to Christina Applegate, who's a sort of Jewish princess, who's also very demanding. And um, I can't exactly remember entirely what the plot is, but there's lots of shooting and assassinating. But anyway, Arrival is played by a very pumped up Lou Diamond Phillips. Oh, wow. Which is great. So, and then it's an excellent cast. And anyway, what's great about it, my. What is it had that thing that a lot of sort of ni- late 90s action movies has is when the kind of indie vibe started to infect. Mainstream yeah. or commercial films, so you know, like how in Con Air, there are all these odd little weird digressions that I'm sure was very influenced by the fact that you know Tarantino and people were very popular, and so suddenly every mainstream film sort of they injected it with a bit of this oddball and humor and didn't they get people like Tarantino to do they would like, do kind of a quick pass to the yeah, script yeah. right? So in this, you know, on the surface, it's it's just it's a kind of action romp in which Wahlberg ends up kidnapping the daughter of this businesswoman but the whole second half is sort of and there's humor throughout like it's not accidental humor it's intentional humor yeah. but he's kidnapped this girl and he's keeping her hidden in his house while his fiance and her parents come to dinner for a sort of Jewish yeah. um, festival and so have this whole all these antics of him having to keep this kidnapped girl hidden whilst uh, Christine Applegate and her parents the father played by Elliot Gould have come for dinner so he's trying to keep, so there's all the kind of like faulty Tower's farce of him trying to keep so this, Woody keeps Allen trying to escape. John Woo. Yeah. <laughs> right. Meanwhile, the other rival assassins show up and he doesn't want to admit that he's an assassin. So he has to welcome them into dinner. So now there's this whole tense sequence where everyone's sat around the dinner table, but there are guns underneath the table whilst Applegate and Gould kind just, just argue and talk like, so there's like a family dinner with assassins. Meanwhile, there's a running joke that Wahlberg has an overdue video that he has to get back to the video store. And the guy (laughs) from the video store keeps phoning him up, demanding the return of the video and that the fee is going up and up. And so it culminates in this huge action set piece, which in my memory is excellent with him being chased through a forest by a car, but him with the video trying to get the video back (laughs) to the video store. And it's just... Anyway, as I say, it's 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 it was. I remember it being funny. I remember it being kind of kinetic and sort of silly and overblown in the way that those the best of those Hong Kong thrillers are, and that Wahlberg was incredibly charming, and that there was great supporting turns, everything over the top yeah. from these other good actors, and it just just being it just feeling like a romp, you know, just like it oh, was well, fun.
0: I, I so want to watch
1: this, and now. I, I I again you might watch it now and it might just be a mess, which I suspect is the case. Yeah. But at the time. I remember being really charmed by it. So I'd be be interested to know whether it has any of those pleasures Well, I'm going to watch it and I'm going
0: to let you know as soon as I've finished watching it. VOD and the internet has a lot to answer for because, you know, it's ruined storylines about people trying to get videos back to (laughs) blockbusters. exactly, yeah. (laughs) We can't do, you know, mobile phones and uh, online streaming. That's it. It's ruined storylines. Well, actually, it's funny. I I saw Deadpool
1: recently. and, And in a way, now that I talk about it, like a lot of the sort of playfulness... Of Deadpool, like you could well imagine in Deadpool him having to get a video back yeah. to the video store yeah, while yeah. saving the world. Like you know what I mean? It's it, it's shot through with that same kind yeah. of fun humor, and I'm sure the big hit is Wobbly. But anyway, at the time, I was
0: really it's by funny because it. the other one you were you were going to mention is Con Air, and so they were both a year apart. So there's yeah. something about that era of dumb action films that had that weird new like. Well, Conair,
1: again, but they were they, they at their best. They were very about, they were obviously. very but they were very overblown. Like there's something very operatic about yeah. Conair. I mean, it's it's preposterous, and and <clears throat> you know, um, everyone you is chewing the scenery. It. I
0: kind of I took it quite. <laughs> it's quite real, actually. Well, I
1: mean, you know, <laughs> it's. I think for for me, what I love about it is it's. You know, it, it feels like it's two and a half hours long. It feels like it ends three times. Yeah. It has these huge set pieces. You know, John Malkovich is over the top. Nicholas Cage everyone's true in the scenery Cage has that absurd haircut um, there's all those great lines where you know he, he kind of kills a guy You put the bunny back in the yeah. box you know and do you remember there's these weird digressions where on board is this serial killer played by Steve Buscemi who stops to have tea in a disused yeah. swimming pool with a little girl who s- weirdly lives in the middle of nowhere. Her family are not around, her parents are not around. you think he's going to like kill her because he's a serial killer? He doesn't. There's And there's l- twisted little jokes and it just feels like someone at the studio said, you know, you have to have some
0: Tarantino-y yeah. digressions and kind of and weird they, cool and it was when they started putting all this sort of indie darling actors in. yeah these right massive... exactly so Buscemi's in yeah. there in cage and yeah like you yeah. say they've shipped those people in John Cusack John, John Malkovich yeah and yet
1: yeah. and it's just and it's overblown and it's preposterous but it's it's fun yeah it's so much fun have and you, I think have you seen it recently yeah I watch it when it comes as soon as it comes on tv I'm yeah. I'm in and I don't I don't think it's you know to me it was absurd and over the top at the time anyway another one i remember from that period similarly enjoying was the long kiss good night
0: do you remember that with sam jackson and uh, gina Gina davis Davis.
1: again same sort of thing like shot through with with funny little asides you know great moment where early on she's just a domestic kind of what housewife who doesn't remember that she used to be an assassin yeah um
0: it's a great... And a guy
1: great. kind of breaks in the house and she throws her kitchen knife at him and kills yeah. him and says to her husband... Her husband looks at him like, what were you doing? And he says, she says, chefs do that. <laughs> you know, it's just sort of... just I don't know, they were just... That was uh, Rennie Harlan, wasn't Renny it? Rennie Harlan. Like, but yeah. they just... Uh, for whatever reason, I feel like in more recent years, a lot of the uh, blockbusters have sort of... They seem to have lacked some of that that campy joyousness that yeah. that those films from that period had.
0: I think you're right about the fact that it was off the tail end of that early 90s indie Sundance Aramax scene. And all those people were now moving away from that and working in... Because I was looking at the guy who... Because I was like, is Con Air... Was it a... um... Was it intentionally funny? Some a definitely said, a phrase you said earlier, which I think would be a funny genre. Yeah, uh, I do comedy. What kind? Intentionally funny, right? <laughs> but um, I, was I definitely at- think it's intentional. But what, what,
1: the reason I say that is because I think sometimes people dismiss those films as though as though the humour wasn't intended yeah. and that it's just corny. Yeah, yeah. You know, but it's not. It's clearly that's intended. You know, I mean, it's obviously intended to be funny. I mean, there's that great moment where, um. John Cusack's kind of rival FBI guy, his car, his much loved, prized possession Porsche or whatever, is yeah. suddenly hooked by a cable that's attached to the plane, and it gets pulled up behind the airplane. And Cusack like, looks out the back of the plane, and there's a there's a Porsche being dragged through the air, and says, "On any other day, that would seem kind of weird," <laughs> and I, it still makes me laugh. But again, you know, it was it, it's supposed to be funny. Well, it's when not I was trying to work
0: work out whether it was intentionally funny or not. I was looking at Simon West's CV, and he hasn't really done films with that sort of humour and um, kind of with that ever so slight left field touch in it. And then the writer, I was looking at his stuff, and he had, he did things like Things to Do in Denver When You're Dead, right? Beautiful Girls. I don't know if you ever saw that. It was a brilliant. Yeah, film.
1: again, they're very, and they're very much of the of yeah. the indie nineties sensibility. High yeah,
0: fidelity and yeah, exactly. So just, I mean, so clearly when he got asked right. to write Conair, he was like, oh. I could well, just I think have a bit it's of a Brookh- isn't it Brookheimer?
1: Yeah. Yeah, and I yeah. think, you know, Brookheimer, again, obviously a smart man who who tapped into, you know, that because you remember things like there's like Crimson Tide. I think Tarantino mm-hmm. did a pass on Crimson, Crimson Tide. Tide. So Tarantino added jokes and little bits of character detail to yeah. that. And then do you remember, um, is it Clement and Lefrenet? I think it's either. Yeah. I think it's Clement and yeah, yeah. Didn't they They're write on extra the on the rock yeah. and they wrote extra jokes on the rock. So, um. You know, they those filmmakers obviously yeah. knew that it needed humour and it needed... They uh, were so overblown,
0: weren't they? That You've just made me... When you said joyous. the rock, oh, just it's a, the music, all the it's like... It's a blast, though. <laughs> yeah. But it's just fun. It's just so oh. much fun, Can you, you know? you imagine making one of those where you've got a full choir and orchestra, yeah. and you're like, um, so this guy's walking into a prison cell. And then you just do every instrument and right, every yeah. <laughs> it's like there's no subtleties here. No Let's subtlety. just fucking go for it, man. Right. Well, I think everything's dialed up to ten. I think they're brilliant choices, and I definitely want to go and watch. Uh, what was it called? The hit, It's the, called the big hit. The big hit. Um, I can't wait to to watch. Well, it. I look forward to finding out yeah. if it stands up at all. Okay. Um, I will let you know. Well, Stephen, thank you for joining me. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Green Talk with Dan Clark on FUBAR Radio. This is a FUBAR Radio podcast. Go to foobarradio.com for more details.